see the value that women play in our society. You know, as men, we have to stand up and we have to come together and be a voice that stands behind these women who are, who are fighting and begging and pleading for just equality. Hello, and welcome to How to Fail Successfully, the podcast that teaches the steps to success through the stories of failures. I'm so happy that you can join me as I interview some of my favorite people and encourage them to share their story with you. I'm Matthew Carrier, and this is How to Fail Successfully. This is episode 15 with today's guest, Divine Evans. Now, before we begin with our conversation with Divine, I do want to thank every single one of you that have tuned in every week and just continue to listen to this and help supporting uh, this podcast. Last week's numbers were the highest it's ever been, and I'm sure the same is going to be with this episode today. So thank you for sharing this podcast on Facebook and Twitter and, and sharing it with your friends and family. It means a lot to me. In today's episode with Divine, well, first off, Divine Evans. The man has worked with everybody. Uh, Rihanna, Mary J. Blige, Outkast, Justin Timberlake, Tim McGraw, Faith Hill, Rascal Flatts. He's worked with everybody. That's why he's the man behind the music. In this episode, Divine shares his story with us from as uh, being signed as a kid to a record label, uh, building his own production, and then eventually going on tour with Mary J. Blige, and how that has led him to where he is today. Divine also shares with us a, a passion project that he had where he authored a book, and it's a very powerful book. We talk about that about halfway through. Here's my conversation with Divine. Enjoy. Divine, thanks for joining today. Of course, man. It's a pleasure to be here. You are one of the hardest working men I know. <laughs> And I'm so thankful that you're willing to come on and share your story and share some wisdom with us. So I appreciate that. Can you kind of fill us in on what you're working on today? Uh, today, I'm working on the uh, musical arrangements for Justin Timberlake's Super Bowl performance. That's awesome. And how long have you been working at that? Uh, we've been working on this for mm, two weeks now. I think about two weeks. Okay. Uh, but it'll take all the way until February 4th, because it's constantly, you know, changes, revisions, you know, emotions, like, <laughs> you know, all those things show up and they make things go a different direction. So it'll, it'll keep evolving, but we're, we're at a really good place right now. So we're on version 11 of the show. <laughs> so we'll, we'll probably be in our version 20s before it's all said and done. And that's kind of normal, But it's right? a good time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, man. Well, let's go back to the beginning a little bit. Kind of um, start from there and just sh share how you got into the music industry. Well, a lot of times whenever I talk about the beginning, I kind of have to like break it into like a couple of pieces. And um, one of the pieces that I like to talk about is like how, you know, I, um, I started my career being managed by Left Eye from TLC. I thought at the time that that would for sure be you know, something that would take my career to like a whole nother level. Uh, Cause they were like at the top of their game. It was right before they, their second deal, renegotiating their contracts to do their fan mail album. Unfortunately, whenever that deal was, was executed, it's kind of like me and all of my production team and a couple of artists that were all affiliated with the label kind of 
had to take a back seat. You know, the, the fan mail album being done, they kind of like put all of us on the bench, you know? Okay. So what I thought was going to be a success there, you know, turned out to be kind of like a waste of time almost, except for the fact that I built like some of the most incredible relationships and I didn't really see the value in that at the time. It was years later before I understood like how God strategically moves things around and the opportunities that you think are the one sometimes are not there. Sometimes they're, they're just a transition and um, the seeds are planted like for that next level. Cause those same people that I was with left out with eventually became the people who introduced me to another group of musicians where we, we started a, a hip hop band and we got signed to universal music. We were recording our first album at um, a producer named Dallas Austin's uh, studio in Atlanta, Georgia. How, how old were you? I believe I was in my maybe 20, 21, maybe. Okay. You know, I was um, unaware of like some of the people that were coming in and out of the studio. Um, but I, I remember there was this one song that my group was recording. I didn't really care for the content of the song. So I just decided to just and kind of stay in the lobby and, and play Miss Pac-Man on, you know, one of the video games that was yeah. in the lobby. <laughs> and uh, I was playing with this little kid, you know, and um, the little kid was the most intelligent kid I ever met. He just was talking about all of this amazing plan of his to change music in the, in the course of music history and all this other stuff. And he was in, he was in a group and he introduced me to his manager and his manager ended up being the woman who changed my life. Wow. Yeah. So she was, uh, she was the bass player for the band climax, which is a, a all girl band back in the eighties. Okay. Yeah. So she, you know, she was in the studio and, and I, I asked her, I said, Hey, I just met, you know, this little kid and he's the most amazing kid ever. And he was telling me that you guys are doing an album for a kid group. And I would, I wanted to know if, if you were open to me possibly writing and producing a couple of songs for them. And she said that she's always willing to listen. So um, she listened to this song that I played for her, which was, in my mind, one of the most miserable songs I ever wrote. But it's the only one I had, and she listened to it, and she fell in love with it. And, you know, she cried when she listened to it, and she told me that she had been looking for somebody for three years that could write a song like this and wow. asked me if I could write a song like this for her boys. And I was like, oh, absolutely. Because at the time, I was like, absolutely miserable like everything was in shambles even though so much was going right it was just so much going wrong and why was that well you know it was just you know it a lot of it had to do with uh, the people i was surrounding myself with okay uh i hadn't i hadn't learned at the time you know the whole birds of a feather kind of thing like yeah. so as an a-list player um, in the music industry, if you surround yourself by B and C level players, you know, you're not really going to be fulfilled and you're, you're always going to feel like you're carrying a bunch of dead weight because, mm. you know, you're, you're having to pick up the slack for those who aren't on the same skill level as you. And, um, and sometimes it's just, people don't see the same direction as you, like you have a vision and, and sometimes vision is not easy to translate in a conversation. It's like people don't get it until it's already executed you know and i was i was always a visionary i knew exactly what i wanted to do but i was surrounded by people that got in the way of that you know and and um i was torn between doing music full-time and uh pursuing a career in the medical field and you know like i quit you know like right before i got a master's degree i just walked out of class i just 
I was in the medical field, like working in the dialysis area, going to school to be a pediatric nephrologist, but I was really a musician, but I was just doing this because I was like, I want to make my mom proud, you know? Yeah, yeah it, it, it really had nothing to do with a true, true desire. So one day I, it just hit me and I just kind of walked away from everything. And I just, you know, I was making a lot of money doing that job, you know, at that time for my age, you know, and I was making, you know, you know, over $24, $25 an hour, the early age of like 21, 22, 23 years old. And that's a lot of money at that age to work a job. And, you know, they paid for my university, so I didn't have any student loans. So everything would have been all good if I would went that route, but it wasn't where my heart was at. So I just walked away from it all. And I just was like, I want to just follow my heart and I'm, I'm going to stick with this music. After meeting this manager and you're, you're having a hard time right now, she hears this song, What Happens Next? So the next thing for me is I um, naturally parted ways with the group, not like friendship wise, but just like, you know, career wise. I was like, I just got to kind of do my own thing. I started writing songs with her and I started writing songs for some of the artists that she had. That that little kid I was playing Miss Pac-Man with turned out to be the R&B singer Lloyd. If you remember Lloyd, he did the song called Southside. Me and my team did that, a, a lot of the songs on that album. Then he had another, she had another artist named Sammy who had a, a gold, we did a gold album with him, you know, and those are like my first two placements as a songwriter and a producer, you know, so it started there. And then she introduced me to another producer who became a partner of mine for like three years. And, you know, like I, I'd say within the first like couple of months of just working with this guy, like I, he elevated my perspective of music and my ability to create music a thousand times over. So whatever I was naturally good at on my own, he took me to the finish line. You know, he he taught me what real production, real songwriting, real arrangements, real radio-ready hits are made of. I had the natural vibe, like, you know, to that he didn't have. And then he had the, you know, he had that polish that I didn't have. And together we were just magical, you know. And then me and him signed a deal with a, a big company. During our time there, the first six or seven months that we were there, we placed. 17 major records. Um, we had 17 songs on the radio in less than half a year. So things were looking great. You know, yeah. we had a 50, 50 deal, which would have meant, you know, like anything that is uh, in advance or publishing related, we, we share with the, the big name producer that we were signed to a 50, 50 deal. So we were told that the songs we were doing were, were being paid, you know, 25,000 a song. And then um, we found out, through a, uh, an argument at, with the receptionist at the studio that they were actually paying 125000 per song. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, man. So, you know, we had, like, you know, almost $2 million that was unaccounted for, and we're sitting up here, like, mind-blown. You know, like, we had a, we had a little confusion in our, in our minds because we were like, you know, how, like, the studio was amazing upgrades and there was you know the, the guy kept pulling up in all these incredible cars like you know i mean we were just like shoot man we must be really bad with our money because we aren't able to do any of this you know and we're making the same amount of money but he's getting all this epic stuff so we didn't understand what was going on but when we found out you know it was truly heartbreaking because you know you take that big of a loss and and you know like your your moment you think it's finally here like now we're finally making money but 25,000 a song times 17 songs may seem like a lot, but, you know, 42% of that was taxed. You have 20% going to a manager. 
I, you know, there's two of us, and we're yeah, taking. It's, it's not a lot when you compare it to the hundred and twenty-five thousand. <laughs> oh, it's nothing compared to that. I mean, yeah, it's crazy. but but even with what we got, like it was way more than we ever earned. But at, at the end of it all, like whenever the taxes and the manager fees and all the stuff like that comes out of it, and then you have to split it amongst two people, you know, you're just like you're making regular regular wages basically you know it's like what you're bringing home is like barely able to keep things going you know with all the stuff we had to invest in with equipment purchases and all that so it was still a struggle it just wasn't as bad of a struggle so it things got heated you know it was like starting to get a bunch of arguments near you know fights almost jumping off you know my partner was a little more wild than me he was ready to just like go get every gun he owned and kill everyone like so it just got too out of control so one of our mutual friends advised me to uh take a break and go on tour for a while and just let let that kind of like work itself out with the legal system and all that other th- you know other stuff so so i basically um was confused because i didn't really know what i was going to do on a tour i don't even go to concerts much less know how to create one but i did it i was like yeah well you know anything i gotta get out of here man because it's too much right now so i told him just to let me know what he needed me to do and i got a phone call on a saturday where i did an interview about a becoming a programmer for Mary J. Blige. And, you know, the, the guy who interviewed me, he asked me a bunch of really technical questions about a bunch of very specific technology and keyboards and computer programs and all this other stuff. And everything he asked me about, I actually owned. I was like, yeah, I actually own that. Yeah. And, you know, I had everything he said. So, and I knew all of them like the back of my hand. So I was like, yeah, so this sounds like an easy job. I still don't really know what the job is, but yeah. if it's with those things, I, I definitely know all that stuff. So he took a risk on me, man. And he flew me out two days later and I started working with Mary J. Blige and I, I couldn't tell you how confused I was, but <laughs> whatever I did worked because I didn't come home for two years. Wow. I stayed with her. I worked on, I started working on all her tours. I worked on five or six, maybe seven albums. I don't even know how many albums, but I worked on a lot of her albums, you know, like stuff, writing stuff, producing stuff, mixing stuff, like some of everything. You eventually found out what a programmer does. What does it yeah, do? Yeah, eventually, yeah. Like I, I found out basically it's, it's the person who is responsible for creating the live performance arrangements of songs in a concert, basically, like, you know, I, I was responsible for creating like the intros of shows, the transitions and segues from song to song, the outros, the reprises, all the things that make things special. And then the wardrobe changes, like, you know, creatively coming up with what's going to happen when she needs three minutes to go and change clothes. And, you know, you have to create all that stuff and, and everything. And, and uh, it was a really good time, man. And it, it really opened up my eyes to a whole nother side of the industry it created an opportunity for me to build a relationship very deep with her, which that relationship led to, you know, since her, I mean, I've worked with hundreds of A-list artists and none of that would have happened if, if I didn't go, if I didn't get robbed blind by that producer, I would have never had all this other success that I've had. I tried to get a job that, you know, like producing or engineering anything with Outkast because I love Outkast so much. You know, nothing ever happened for me. But after I worked with Mary Day, like when I came back home, like they called me, That's you know, because they heard the work I did just from coming to shows and stuff. And they called me in and then I, I ended up working on the Speaker Box Love Below project and the uh, Purple Ribbon All-Star album with them. You know, and none of that would have happened if I would have not went through those particular wow. challenges and breakdowns and 
and everything else. So, so sometimes, you know, you have to like not even get emotional about loss because it's like, damn, you, you don't really understand what's about to happen for you because that, that loss leads to so much more than you could ever imagine. Well, Divine, let me ask you a question though. After you've been now screwed over, possibly now twice, why go on tour? Like, why stay in the music industry and not just go back into the medical field? Well, I mean, for me, man, I, you know, me going to the medical field was really me suppressing everything I love. It's, it's the equivalent of, like, a parent making you marry someone, you know, and you really don't have any feelings for that person at all, but you're forced to spend the rest of your life with that person. And it's like, there's no happiness there. And happiness is, like, the most important thing that I can tell anyone to maintain. You know, I feel like when I was six years old, I fell in love with music. I fell in love with the guitar. I fell in love with the idea of, of writing songs and the process of putting words together to make the perfect story come to life. I fell in love with that. It was an obsession. All I would do was listen to music. And, you know, I remember my parents not letting me stay up late at night whenever the Jackson 5 were going to, they were going to perform on TV. And I remember laying at the door trying to listen to the TV underneath the crack of the door. And I remember that love and the medical field did not provide that for me. Yeah. You know, and I felt like as much as I care about people, what the patients that I had in that field, I loved them. They were wonderful. They were everything to me. They were so funny. They were so fun. You know, I always wanted them to be taken care of, but I couldn't give them my all. I couldn't commit to them because I, my heart was somewhere else. So I had to follow my instincts and stick with what I know. Like, I'm, I'm here to be musical. I'm here to create music. And that's that's my only purpose. And I just have to accept it because it's not even something that I I wanted to do. I had no choice because it was like constantly on my mind. It's all I've thought about since I was, you know, able to like form sentences. I've been like obsessed with music. So, you know, I just had to roll with that, man. I met you around the time that you had started the, the your production team called The Senate. Can you kind of explain to us why you started that? Yeah, The Senate Music Group was a concept that... Uh, that came from just my belief on success. Like, you know, I believe that um, you're only as strong as your team and I don't care like what success story you ever, you know, hear. There's no way that somebody can tell a success story and, and just say, Hey, it was, I did this by myself. There always had to be somebody on your side that was just as strong as you that worked just as hard as you. And, and I, and I'm a firm believer in a, in, in a team. I put together the Senate, we started that whole thing just to become like a new staple in the eyes of the music industry. You know, like the whole concept was songs written for the people, by the people. Because we, we weren't really happy with the condition of, of music, where it was going. We felt like there was a lot of soul and a lot of life missing in a lot of the songs. You know, we wanted to kind of try to, you know, try our best to like bring some of that back. You know, that was the whole purpose behind that, you know, but I've always been a firm believer in a, in having a strong team, you know, like even whenever I was with the, the producer that we had the issues with, like all that success came from us being a team. It was not because of me. It was not because of my partner. It wasn't because of the, the producer we were with or his business team. It was all of us collectively that made that success story. Unfortunately, they, the, you know, the company just didn't really respect us as as business people and they thought they can get over on the money side of it but the team was powerful and i wanted i wanted to recreate that same feeling and that same powerhouse here in los angeles so that that was the whole purpose behind creating that that particular team 
you have your production team. You're occasionally on the road on these different tours. When did you have time? Listen, I know that you're one of the hardest working men I know. <laughs> I know that you work uh, 25 hours a day, eight days a week. Right. <laughs> but let's talk about your book. You authored a book. A, why did you write the write a book? And, and kind of tell us a little bit what it's about. Yeah. Well, I mean, the easy answer to how I have time for it is my my wife. At the time, we were um, we were engaged. Whenever this um, conversation happened, I had a bunch of people that were around me that were kind of, you know, man- manipulators, taking advantage of my resources. They were breaking my studio equipment, spilling drinks on my studio equipment. Just a whole bunch of like savages started to be in my life, you know. And she saw that that there was a problem, and some of the people were not genuine around me. So she pulled me aside and she said, "I don't really care what you do." With when it comes to us, but the most important thing for me is that I want you to stop everything you're doing and I want you to finally do something just for you because you've given so much of your time, your money, your, your equipment, resources, your studio, you pay thousands of dollars a month for this place and you work so much, you don't even have time to use it. They just use it. They have parties in there when you're gone. They're not even using it for what it's supposed to be used for. So I want you to stop all of it and I want you to finally do something for you and at the time, um, I had a girl in my life. Her name was Sophia. She was like a little sister to me. I, I considered her a sister. I considered her family family. At the time, she had unfortunately became the victim of rape and sexual assault in uh, in a studio environment. So me dealing with that, I, I decided to take my wife's advice, and I decided to take my natural approach to life. And I decided to let my pain from that experience become art because it, it's what helps me cope with life. You know, whenever life gets hard and things get overwhelming, the creative side of me is what gets me through that. And I wanted to do something for her to show her that she was not alone. I wanted to do something to her to show her that there is life after this experience. And I wanted her to feel loved. And that's what inspired uh, the sheet music, the diary of a songwriter project. Um, so I, I took that idea and I reached out to over 1500 artists and worldwide, all, all female artists and just inquired like which of them would be interested in sharing stories, experiences, as well as advice to other women on what they've gone through in music. And, um, what they feel like they could have done to avoid certain things, what they've done to protect themselves from certain things and what they do to look out for certain things. So we kind of touched on stories and experiences of um, 124 of those girls. And we made sure that the stories were classy. They weren't like dogging men out. They weren't name dropping. They were, they were strictly, telling experiences and then closing out each experience with advice, like looking back, like this is the things I would have did differently. This is how, this is how I handled it. This is my advice to you. If you're ever in this situation, these are some of the signs I should have looked out for, you know, so they were just wanting to share those kind of things. And then I walked through the book as a narrator. I make sure that I have, you know, a lot of information in the book that shows the value that women have in our families and our lives, like beyond being, sexual partners you know these are our daughters these are our women these are our grandmothers our aunts these are our nieces these are our our friends these are people that as men you know they hold us to the highest level they support us in everything we do 
Um, our lives would be nothing without them. And their fight for justice is nothing without us. They can't win the fight on their own. And it's because they're fighting us and we have to like cooperate and we have to like show the men who refuse to like see the value that women play in our society. We have to be, you know, as men, we have to stand up and we have to come together and, and be a voice that stands behind these women who are, who are fighting and begging and pleading for just equality, not even like the edge over us. They just want to be equal. You know what I mean? And they're still fighting for this crap. And it's like, it doesn't make any sense to me. I'm just a firm believer that women, um, in our, in, in any industry should not be, you know, afraid to like go to the studio. They should not be afraid to go take a meeting. They shouldn't be afraid because wherever they go, if they're in an isolated setting with a group of men, they never know what's going to happen, you know, and that's not cool. And, and any man, if I, if I said to you, like, if I met you for the first time and I said, Hey man, I'm going to try to rape your mother tonight. They would freak out. You know what I mean? They would, they would try to kill me or anybody else who said something that's stupid to them. And, and the thing is, how come we can't see that the women that are, that these guys are doing this to, they are someone's mother. They are someone's daughter. Like how could we willingly scar anyone for their whole life just for that moment of, of pleasure? And I don't even say you get pleasure out of somebody screaming and crying, but apparently some people do. And they're willing to put scars in a, on a person's spirit for the rest of their life. And I think it's a sickness. And I think that, you know, it's time that the laws and, and you know, the consequences of, of these men's actions are, are way more severe. Yeah, but that's that's kind of like, you know, the backstory of how, how it all came together. And, and, you know, it's a beautiful project. It's, um, you know, it features women from Africa, from Asia, all of Asia, you know, Sri Lanka, Australia, Paris, London, all of America, um, South America. There's women in the book from all over the world. And my purpose for that was to let everyone know who does, like, take a look into the book. It'll show you exactly how bad this problem is worldwide. It's not like a California thing. It's not like a New York thing. It's worldwide. Women are experiencing this, you know, abuse and neglect and you know, we have to, we have to like find a way to make it, make a point and, and make people stop. And we did this two years ago. So we were like way ahead of this, all these trends, the hashtag me Too's, the hashtags that are out now. We, we were like way ahead of all of that. We didn't do it to be popular. We were doing it because we were all hurting out here. We were all experiencing this. We all became victims and we all wanted to say something and to try to get the attention of bigger fish to help us out. And which has been the hardest part. You know, I've had, I work for all these celebrities and not everyone that's ever committed to being a part of the book, being a part of supporting the book or promoting the book never follows through. And it, it kind of sucks because it's just another, it's another inside look at like how, how willing people are to turn that, that blind eye and just act like it doesn't exist, you know, and here we are, we're, you know, we're small time, but we're doing everything we can to fight for women. Um, I, you know, I took my, my daughter to the women's march in DC. It was just me and her, you know, like marching in the crowd. And I wanted her to see like this, this powerful alliance of female energy. And, and I wanted her to see that her father is, is like an advocate for, for her future, because that's what this is really all about to me. It's like, my daughter's going to inherit the world that we leave our children, you know, they're going to inherit this world. And if we stay silent, this is the world we're giving our kids. You know, if you are a man and you have a daughter, you're basically saying 
by your, your silence is saying that you're okay with your daughter experiencing the same shit because that's exactly what's going to happen if we don't change the game. You know, we have to change it, you know, so otherwise we're, we're really not riding for our kids the way we should. Like, we, you know, we protect them and everybody has like a teenager. And whenever people see their teenage girl, they're like, oh, you got to get a gun now. Well, maybe so, but, you know, you're probably going to need more than that because, you know, one out of three are going to become victims of rape. So you're probably going to need the gun and you're probably going to need a budget for a doctor. <laughs> Man, that last half of that conversation is so good. I love it. Hopefully it helped open up your eyes to a couple things as well as it did mine. As we continue on in the second half of this conversation, we'll talk a little bit more about this, uh, about his book. And then we discuss how Queen Latifah got him his first job scoring movies. It's a great story. And of course, I have to ask him about his time with Justin Timberlake. And I asked him to share his favorite Justin Timberlake story you're going to want to hear this. It's great. Here's the second half of my conversation with Divine. Why do you think some of these celebrities will turn a blind eye? Like, why do you think some of them will not say anything until it becomes a popular movement? Man, so I think it's like with celebrities, I think that, that um, one of the number one reasons celebrities become so successful is because they're willing to become obsessed with themselves. And that obsession, uh, it allows them to neglect, you know, like anything that's not about them. It's not about them. They're not, they're not the victims. They're not, they don't have any reason to stop what they're doing. Like they're too focused on their, you know, their photo shoot for the day or their studio session for the day. Like they don't really care to be involved until they become a victim. Yeah. You know, so, and the minute that they become a victim, then they then they are willing to speak out. And, you know, and I just think that that's kind of, you know, unfair. But I, I really don't know, man. I, I Honestly, like some of the some of the people have been men. Some of the people have been women. But it, it's been like difficult to get support. Where can people find this book? Uh, you can find the book at the diary of a songwriter dot com. You said the diary of a songwriter. Yeah, the diary of a okay. songwriter. Mm hmm. Okay, so after you authored this book, I did a little bit of research. I didn't know this about you, Divine, so you've been holding out on me a little bit. Uh-oh. <laughs> you you got into composing. Oh, yeah, man. I mean, that was always a passion. You know, and honestly, it, it's kind of like it was, a, it was a, a fire ignited by creating these tours because I became so involved in creating tours um, that I started to oversee, like, all of the visual and the musical components. I started to be involved in all of that. So I would work with video teams and we would basically create, you know, a a sound bed and environment musically that matched the visual. So there wasn't a separation because in the beginning when I had no voice, no power, no, no respect. And, you know, I was just to do what people tell me, guy, no one wanted to hear me when I would say like, you know, I did this intro for Rihanna where we were talking about global domination and a computer takeover. And whenever we go see the first show, while this Terminator level intro is happening, there's a bunch of cobras and snakes on the video screen. And we were just like, what is this? You know, and it was, and from that moment on, I told anyone who hires me, like, I have to be He says, I have to be involved in everything because they just destroyed it. Destroyed everything we put together. 
putting together a tour like that was a, it was like creating a movie. So I was like, man, this, I really have fun doing this. I wanted to get deeper into it. So I started to kind of reach out to people and try to get up and coming film directors and producers to just send me like their short films or whatever. And I would just do music, you know, and compose like to their, their, their um, movies for free to get the experience as well as just to get, you know, my, my name in like some different circles. I told Queen Latifah, who was another one of my main, my main clients, I told her like how passionate I was about getting into that world. And she told me, you know, Hey, well, uh, why don't you find a scene of a movie you like, um, mute it, put something to it and then send it to me and let me just see what you do that, you know? And I was like, okay. Yeah. So I did that. And then one day I, she, I got a call from her and she was like, yo D where you at? And I was like, well, I'm actually headed to the airport. I, I got to fly to New York for a few days. And she was like, well, when, what are you going to do? And I was like, well, I'm going to do something with Nico and Vince out there. Um, a couple of days from now we have a, uh, a, a what is it called? Uh, it's a serious FM. I, I can't remember what it's one of them satellite radio stations, but we were doing a, a, a performance for them in their office Anyway, so she asked me, she said, well, if it's in a couple of days, how much would it cost for you to not get on that plane? And I was like, well, I don't know. So I told her the price. Of the, I found out. I told her the price. And then, you know, she had her driver come meet me, gave money to change my flight and asked me to come straight to her house. So I, I came over and I was like, what's up? She first asked me, like, if I could hook some speakers up for her outside because she had a party. And I was like, well, I know you didn't call me. Is that what you speakers up. Like, <laughs> Yeah, you know, I was like, I, I could have just sent somebody else over here to do that. You know, she's like, nah, just do that for me real quick and then come back and see me. That's so I hooked funny. these speakers up outside, and then I came in her office, and she was on a conference call, and she just told me, you know, have a seat. I was about to walk out because I didn't want to disrespect her call. She told me to have a seat. And as soon as I sat down, she said to the producer that was on the phone, she said, Danya, I have the guy with me that can save your movie. And I'm sitting up here like lost for words, man. I'm like, what in the hell is she talking about? You know what I mean? Like, I have no idea what she's talking about. She just started talking so highly of me. And I was like, wow, I didn't even know she felt this way about me. You know, you know, she's such a friend. She doesn't really talk about like, you know, what she feels most of the time. It's like, listen, more music, more, 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 but never really a compliment. The compliment is the callback. So, you know, so I was like, wow, I, I didn't even know. And so the producer asked me if I can come by watched the movie and basically what happened is they paid like all their money that they had left in their budget to a, a film composer and they hated everything he did and he refused to cooperate to change it to what they wanted so i went and watched the movie with them and they told me before they started playing it they were like they really wanted their, their expectations were more like a trent lesnar approach to the film they didn't want it to be like all all dreamy and ballady and stuff, yeah. you know, yeah. um, a little edgy, a little, which is what they did. And yeah. yeah, they wanted it to be like real, you know, I mean, they, they wanted some of the pretty piano stuff too, but they wanted to have like something a little more trendy and young. So Trent Reznor and Hans Zimmer, uh, they're, they're like two of my number one, like out there, my, I can't separate them. I can't say one's better than the other because they're so different, but they're both so like incredible with what they do, you know? So, you know, I was like hardcore, like, yeah, let's do that. Cause you know, I love his stuff and we could definitely do something real dirty like that. And this yeah. was an independent film called the Lycan. I think it's called now they changed the name of it, but I think it's called Lycan. You know, so it wasn't like, you know, it, you know, it wasn't Avatar. It wasn't the new Star Wars. You know what I mean? But I didn't need it to be either. Cause I don't know enough about 
that level yet. I'm still trying to get there myself. You know what I mean? But yeah. it was a great opportunity for me, and I I learned so much. You know, and I did it for free. They didn't have any money left, and I you know I did this whole movie. I only I not only did the all the music with uh, one other guy named Jason. I also did all the sound design for the whole movie. Every single sound effect I did, you know, all of that, Foley and everything. And um, it was an amazing learning experience. And then that opportunity led to another call about, you know, six or seven months later from another one of my friends who got offered to do the new edition movie. It was a three, three series movie that they did. And um, he had no experience. You know, he had like all the credibility in the world as a musician, but no experience scoring a film. So he knew I did this one film and he was like, do you want to do it with me? And I was like, absolutely. So me and him and, and um, a couple of the musicians we did, you know, because it took a few of us because we had this really like ridiculous deadline to meet. There were three 90 minute movies. So, you know, you couldn't really do that in 30 days like they wanted with just two people. It was too much work. So. Yeah. Yeah. We brought on a few other musicians, and yeah, so that's that's like you know the the um, the journey, my journey into you know um, you know composing and doing film scoring, and I'm like definitely like excited about like some of the stuff that we're working on, you know, coming up this um this summer. You know, we have like some pretty cool projects that we're you know we're getting on our, on our table that are much bigger projects. So I'm I'm like you know really looking forward to seeing where this will take me. You just got off the road. With the Chainsmokers, right? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And before that, I'm looking at some of your, your credentials, and it's it's so impressive, but you worked on the Justin Timberlake Tennessee Kids 2020 Experience Tour. Yes. Uh, I know my audience, so I'll say this one. Uh, you composed and produced original music themes and concepts for the Tim McGraw and Faith Hill Tour. Yeah. That was that was a shock. Yeah, yeah. What happened? Like, explain what happened because that's definitely not in your realm of of not uh, music. at all. Yeah. When they called, I was like, "Wait, you sure you want me to do it? Like, I'm the king of hardcore music. Like, you know, like." So no, they they wanted a new sound, and they they heard like the stuff we did for other artists. They said, "Do whatever you feel," and me and uh, Adam Blackstone worked together and. You know, we created a very, very special moment. It was wonderful, man. It was like such a, an honor. And then that, whenever we did that, the, the work we did on that got us a call from, um, oh my God, I can't believe I'm, I just went completely blank. What's the name of the band? Uh, Rascal Flats. Oh, okay. Yeah, we did all the music arrangements for their Vegas res- residency. So anybody who goes to see them live in Vegas, you know, even the intro of the show, like I'm the one who read the script, you know, and they just, they read it the same way I read it. But yeah, so that, that Tim McGraw Faith Hill job led to the Rascal Flatts job. And then that led to, you know, we just finished up something for Georgia, uh, Florida, Georgia line, you know, and I'm like, wow, this is so crazy how the world works because we don't even pick our phone up. You know, we don't call anyone. We don't send out resumes anymore. We just wake up and you know, you get an email with the most epic opportunity of a lifetime, and the only thing you could do is is pay attention to the to the world around you, pay attention to the history of music, and always be prepared to like step outside your box. Because if it wasn't for my obsession with music and music culture, not just one genre, there's no way I would have found a bridge that led to like my 
Tim McGraw and Faith Hill's world. Mm-hmm. They weren't looking for me to do something that already existed in their world. They wanted a hybrid of what we do and what they do. And that's, that's the bridge we built, you know, and in the middle we met and we found a very special common ground, you know, took their, their whole tour to a whole nother level, you know, and it, it was just one of those things that, you know, I, I'm so grateful for the time that I've sacrificed in studying music and listening to music and, never turn telling somebody to turn a song off because you know like, i didn't like that genre of music like always being open-minded because you know you never know like what's soaking into that brain of ours you know yeah what was one of your most memorable justin timberlake experiences while being on the road with him my most memorable experience if someone anytime anybody asks me questions about him the thing i immediately flash to is it's a requirement for everyone on the tour, including Justin himself to do a load in and load out with the crew. Wow. That means pushing cases, taking down PA systems and video screens. He makes it a requirement for everyone to do it. And he, he leads the pack. You know, he's not, he's not on the tour bus while this happens. He actually is the first person to put on the gloves. You know, he tells everybody that he wants everybody to to understand how hard the crew works. That that way, people will have a respect for the people who keep us safe, the people who are you know hanging two, three hundred tons of metal above our heads. Those people are very important, and he wanted everybody to understand like how hard they work. Where they they walk into that venue at four or five a.m. and they walk out at 2 a.m. and they have sometimes have to do it two or three days in a row. Yeah, so that was like honestly one of the most memorable parts of, of it. And I know that may be a weird memory, but that sense of humbleness is like, it, it really meant a lot to me because I'm a very humble person and it made me feel good to know that there is somebody at the top who still has integrity and, and respect for others because a lot of them don't. Yeah, and I can attest that you do and that's what I respect most about you. In regards to your work ethic and your life, like what drives you? What makes you want to work so hard? You know, one of the things that drives me is, um, is the, you know, kind of like just reflecting on where I come from. I come from, you know, a very small, a very small town in Texas. We didn't have anything growing up. And, and I know like just seeing like the, the stuff my mother had to put up with at her jobs and, being disrespected by her her employees and just all the stuff she had to go through like I worked this hard because I remember what it's like to not have and I and I want I want my parents to to feel like all of the stuff they went through is worth it you know what I mean like when when my parents came to LA for my wedding and it's the first time they came to my house since I've lived in California they saw like all these platinum and gold records and Grammys and they saw all this stuff in my house I mean it was just they could not stop crying. Even though they knew I did all these things, walking into my house and seeing it was, it's what it's, it's why I work so hard that I work so hard so that that moment could have happened. So they could see like, Hey, everything I put you through, everything that the world put you through, you know, you stood by me and you gave me the opportunity to, to become this, you bought my guitar for me when you had no money. You know, my mom would like 
pawn something to go get me a $60 guitar because that's the only way she could pay for it. And that love, you know, is, is the reason that I am here today. It's, it's what got me here. And, and, um, I think all of our parents who support us, you know, like that's like our main thing. I want to make sure that, that all of my ancestors who, who were on both sides of the fence, I'm, I'm half black, I'm half white. And I look at it like all of my ancestors who were forced into slavery and lost their lives and, and everything else. Like I still am a descendant of them. And I'm also a descendant of the people who own the slaves and, and everything else. And I want to become the the hybrid of, of those two worlds and show that with love, love brought love brought two people together. Uh, you know, my father, who's a, who's a black man, my mother, who's a white woman brought them together and they created me and I've made sure that everything I put my name on, everything that I'm affiliated with presents quality. It presents respect. It doesn't, doesn't, it doesn't produce like anything dark or hateful. I I won't even work on projects like that. You know, I've turned down many, many projects. I won't do it. I don't do songs that degrade women. No trace of me throughout history. Will you find a song that I've ever been a part of that was degrading. Yeah. And that's what I want to be, man. I want to be the voice of, of, of both sides of the fence and show that, you know, when love comes together, like anything is possible. Yeah, man. That's awesome. That's, that's great right there. I've got two last questions for you with this podcast being about, uh, failures and successes. Can you give me your definition of failure? What does failure mean to you? Oh, that's, that's an easy one, man. Failure to me is if you allow yourself to forget why you started the dream, whatever your dream is, like if your dream is to do music like us, if your dream is to, you know, write screenplays and you allow yourself to, to let that dream die and forget why you started it, even if you do get into the industry, but you forget why you started it, that's when you fail. You only fail whenever you forget the love. My biggest success story is that I've remained loyal to that six-year-old kid who fell in love with music. And that to me is the only time I could fail myself is if I fail him, the six-year-old. If, if he saw me now, would he be proud? Or would he be like, what, the, what happened? You know what I mean? Like, that to me is like failure if that makes sense. Yeah. And then the opposite side of that would be success. How would you define success? Success is a little tougher to define. I think that, uh, there's different levels of the, that. I think that the one I lean towards most is like probably the more poetic version of success would be getting to a point in your life where you can have anything you want, but you desire none of it. Hmm. That's success Wow. to me. And I don't know if that would make a lot of sense to everyone, but, you know, I think that from a financial point of view, I think that like being in a position like as a man, for example, I, I'm very successful. I ha- I've had situations where, you know, like I'm around thousands and thousands of beautiful women all the time. I could probably have a lot of those women, but I desire none of those women. The success that I've achieved is what attracts them, but it it doesn't have any part, you know, anything to do with my goal in life. I don't, I don't need that. I don't want that. I, you know, and, and, and then at a, as a teenager, that sounded really cool. Like to be like the rock star life, yeah. you know, but 
you know, to reach this point in my life and, you know, and I could say to myself, like, that doesn't sound appealing to me at all. I could, I could have, and I have had lots of money. I've had no money and I don't want to go buy, I can go buy a, a you know, a, a $200,000 car if I wanted to, but I don't want that. I I don't want that at all. I want, you know, I want different things. And, 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 um, and that's to me is like, you know, true success is like being able to have anything, but desiring none of it. I just want my daughter to be okay. I want my daughter to, to you know, to, to be happy and, and see me every day of her life. That's, that's what I want. You know what I mean? And I don't, you know, I don't need to like have a million dollar car to do that. I, I just want to be a good father, a good husband, a good son, and a good friend to the people that I'm friends with. That's kind of where I've, the point I've reached in my life and the understandings that I've, I've gained over the years, you know, that, that would, that would be the best success story to me. Well, before you go, can you kind of give us that piece of advice that you had received uh, sometime in your life, that advice you don't want to forget? Um, yeah. I mean, I think that the best advice I've ever gotten in my life um, that, you know, I, I can think of is, the lady who I met at that studio who managed that little kid group, mm-hmm. um, one of the last things she said to me before we kind of stopped working together, and it wasn't even a bad stop working together. I just moved to L.A. from Atlanta, so we just didn't really see each other like that anymore. You know, I was really excited about, you know, some of the stuff we were doing, and she turned around to me and she stopped the music that was playing in the room, and she grabbed both of my hands and she said, Divine, I pray that no one ever dims the light that I see in your eyes. And that advice really, really touched me and it meant a lot to me over time because I didn't really understand it when she said it, but the deeper I got into the industry and I realized how cruel people are in this industry and I realized how selfish people are and I realized how, um, how many people don't really have appreciation for the work it takes to earn stuff. A lot of people take things for granted. I didn't know what that meant until I started to experience a lot of these people. And, and a lot of these people were very, very interested in destroying whoever you are as a person. And they can easily throw you off course and change who you are. I'm a very giving person by nature. If I meet you and, and we're friends, like there's nothing I have that you can't have. If you need it more than me, it's yours. There's no question. You don't owe me nothing. I don't lend people money. I, I'll give you money if you need it. And if you pay me back, it's because you chose to. It isn't because I asked you to people can change you. And, and I've been, I've been very, very um, close to letting people take that from me, but I always remember those words. And now I understand what that means, you know, what it means to, to not let people dim the light that's inside of you. What that means is like, don't let people change you, you know, and don't never, you know, like the love and passion you have for one thing today, don't let anyone take that away from you. Like fight for it. Like it's like your life depends on it. And that's what I've always done, man. I've I've always like stayed loyal to to that, and I've made sure that I didn't let anybody dim my light. You know, I'm gonna be passionate about music now till the very end. It's like I'm I'm not gonna let anybody make me feel like I'm not great at it. You know, I'm I'm not gonna ever act like I'm the best at it because I don't even know what that would even mean. Because you know, there's so many amazing people. Like, there's no such thing as the best. I just work hard and I'm consistent and I'm reliable. Whenever you bring me on to do something. And that, that's what keeps me going. Well, Devine, you've always been uh, such a, a great friend and a mentor towards me. And I just 
really am appreciative that you were willing to come on and share your story and uh, just provide us with, with some wisdom in your life. So thank you so much for that. Of course, man. And we'll all be watching February 4th, Justin Timberlake Halftime Show. We'll all be tuning in and thinking of you. Oh, cool, man. Thanks, man. Everybody, please let me know what you think. And don't forget to go online and check out The Diary of a Songwriter, thediaryofasongwriter.com. Yeah, and if anybody has any any interest in, you know, following us, you know, you can come to my website is divineevans.com, D-E-V-I-N-E, Evans, E-V-A-N-S.com, you know, and I, a lot of information is on there. You can find it about my wife's album at um, IamDana.com, Dana is D-A-Y-N-A-H.com. So please check us out. All right, thanks, Divine. That was Divine Evans. What were your takeaways on this episode? What did you learn from this episode? Shoot me an email. Let me know about your journey that you're on, the fight that you're fighting right now. Hopefully, if you're pursuing something, whether it be the arts like this episode is, that you don't allow anybody else to turn off that light, that you keep going strong and pursuing what you want to pursue. In next week's episode, I interview a Grammy-nominated, possibly soon-to-be Academy Award-nominated waitress. Here's a clip. The entertainment business is a really difficult place to be in, and I know that even up till last week, I have had like a roller coaster of a, of a time. Even, you know, me telling you I have this soundtrack coming out, and the perception is that everything is, is amazing, and a lot of that is amazing, but the reality is I lost um, my record deal last week. I have a major motion picture going to be in theaters coming out and I lost my management and my record deal last week, the week before Christmas. So it just goes to show no matter how many amazing things that you can drum up, um, unfortunately, there are always circumstances that can kind of, uh, that can derail you. That's next week. I'll see you then.